Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 33, 2 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. The last time we concluded this disturbing story of King David's solution for ending a famine that had been caused by a three-year drought. Now there's no doubt that this drought was of divine origins because David inquired of the Lord and the Lord plainly said he was causing the drought. Now the difficulties for us begin when Yehovah also tells David that his withholding of the reins was due to blood guilt caused by King Saul and his household when they unjustly committed mass homicide upon certain members of the Benjamite city of Gibeon. Now these certain members were not Hebrews. They were ethnic Amorites whose ancestors had made a peace treaty almost four centuries earlier with Joshua. Now one of the complexities of our story is that this ancient peace treaty had invoked Jehovah's name as the guarantor of its terms. So when Saul killed those Gibeonites, he also defiled God's holy name by violating that covenant of peace. Well, after David turned over these seven men, all descendants of Saul, to the Gibeonites for them to execute for blood revenge, they were killed, then they were impaled on stakes, then they were left to rot. But Ritzpa, a former concubine of King Saul and mother of two of the victims, camped out at the place where these seven men's bodies were dis disrespectfully being displayed in order that she might discourage birds and jackals from picking at the decaying flesh. She faithfully remained there from April to probably about August. All right. And we're told that once the seasonal rains began, she took this as a heavenly sign that the curse of the drought had been lifted. So she then went home to Jerusalem. Well, David was so impressed by Ritzpah's faithfulness, and no doubt to some degree or another he felt that her dedication had something to do with God once, once again allowing water to fall from the sky. Well, he too was moved to action. And so he not only had the skeletal remains of those seven corpses retrieved, but he also sent a team of men to Jabesh Gilead to bring the ashes of King Saul and Jonathan back to Israel for a proper burial in their home tribal territory of Benjamin. Well, when all this is done, we get the words in 2 Samuel 21.14 that after that, uh, only after that was God prevailed upon to show mercy to the land. Now the usual Christian theological conclusion of this episode is that thus we see that human blood had to be shed, painful as it was, in order for the blood guilt caused by Saul to be atoned for. And many ancient and modern Hebrew theologians see it 
generally in the same way, although not necessarily for the same reasons. And to all this I said I strongly disagree because these conclusions completely ignore the Torah laws that would govern this matter. And you can review last week's lesson for the details on that. But rather what we see here is a a, a horrific, but frankly rather par for the course, illicit mixing of God's laws with man-made doctrines, political expediency, religious superstitions, and paganized thoughts. And as we wind down the book of 2 Samuel and David's life, this is the general condition of God's chosen people in the era of the kings. Now before we finish chapter 21, I want us all to consider that before we shake our heads in sadness or disgust at these ancient Hebrews, Modern Judaism and much, although by no means all, of modern Christianity is on a parallel path. Man-made doctrines that purport to speak for the scriptures often override God's holy word. Historically pagan symbols and rituals have been woven into our worship practices, into our holidays, even into our speech. And unless we determine to carefully examine even the most basic tenets of our faith and then compare them to Holy Scripture, we have no idea that such improper ideas and foreign beliefs are even in there. Well, David reacted on impulse and on normal religious and social protocols for his day. This is what we tend to do. He determined that he was doing what was right. He was solving a problem that the Lord had placed before him. But had he just thought to consult God's word instead of relying on embedded cultural traditions or the, the counsel of men whom he considered to be religious experts, no doubt the route he took to try and expiate the blood guilt caused by Saul would have been a very different one. Now I also have no doubt that had he taken the course that is prescribed by the Torah that he would have faced nearly universal resistance from his royal court and from his people. Why? Because it would have been unfamiliar to them. Today, many of you, many of us, who have for a long time sensed that something's not quite right about where we've arrived in our journey with the Lord, and that something essential is amiss within our cherished cherished religious institutions, we have pressed the pause button you have determined to go to the source, to the Bible, to see what God has to say about things, rather than continuing to rely on what men have to say about what God has to say. And you're meeting a lot of resistance, aren't you? 
You try to show others what the Word of God says and they look at you like you've got horns and are snorting fire. You're accused of causing disunity in the body. Maybe even of rejecting Christ. Sometimes your family becomes greatly concerned for you. Maybe even shuns you. Your pastors and ministers do all they can to remind you, now look, you're just a layman. Okay? And that they're the only ones who are the experts and keepers of God's truth. So for you to study Holy Scripture by yourself, especially if it's the Old Testament, well, this is just all a danger to your spiritual health and to your well-being. You and I have the same choice before us as David had. Seek God's Word. And in obedience, do what is right in the Lord's eyes and certainly encounter resistance. Or we can continue with what has become normal and customary within our Western society and religious circles because then we'll not disrupt our comfortable and familiar situation. Or even worse, we'll not have to admit our wrong and repent and then make changes to our lives and lifestyles. I'm going to read to you six verses from Revelation chapter 3. Don't pick up your Bibles and look there. I'll just do it quickly. Revelation 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the Messianic community in Sardis write, Here is the message from the one who has the sevenfold Spirit of God and the seven stars. I know what you are doing. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are in fact dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains before it dies too. For I have found what you are doing incomplete in the sight of my God. So remember what you received and heard and obey it. Turn from your sin. Because if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief and you don't know at what moment I'll come upon you. Nevertheless, you do have a few people in Sardis who've not soiled their clothes. And they will walk with me clothed in white because they are worthy. He who wins the victory will, like them, be dressed in white clothing and I won't blot out his name out of the book of life. In fact, I'll acknowledge him individually before my Father and before his angels. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. I don't know about you, but that sends a little bit of a chill up and down my spine to think that our Savior is saying this to us. And this message from Messiah was written to end times worshipers of the God of Israel. And the primary message is, wake up! We have strayed onto the wrong path. But we think everything is fine. But we're in the greatest danger of being removed from the book of life. We've been operating on autopilot for so long, placing our confidence in doctrines and in religious institutions 
that we've stopped looking to the Word of God, who is also our Messiah Yeshua, for truth. Let's move on. Let's read the final few verses of 2 Samuel chapter 21 together. We're going to start reading at verse 15 and go to the end. That's page 358 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. I take that back. 359. 359. 2 Samuel 21, starting at verse 15. Once again, the Pilshtim, that's the Philistines, made war on Israel. And David went down with his servants and fought against the Philistines, but David began to get tired. Yishpanov, one of the sons of the giant, said that he'd kill David. His spear weighed seven pounds. He was wearing new armor. But Abishai, the son of Seruiah, came to David's rescue by striking the Philistine and killing him. Then David's men swore to him, You must no longer go out to battle with us in order not to quench the lamp of Israel. A while after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Sibchai, the Hushite, killed Soph, one of the sons of the giant. There was more war with the Philistines at Gov. Elchanan, the son of Yaare or Gim, the Beit Lachmi, killed Goliath the Gittite, Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's beam. There was again war at Gath, where there was a belligerent man with six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, twenty-four in all, and he too was son of a giant. And when he mocked Israel, Jonathan the son of Shema, David's brother, killed him. These four were sons of the giant in Gath. They fell at the hands of David and his servants. Um, So this appendix that lists various happenings of David's life continues with with a whole series about wars that David fought with the Philistines. Now these brief accounts were compiled from various chronicles and they are given to us at this point as practical proofs that on numerous occasions the Lord graciously delivered David from the hands of of his enemies. In fact, in retrospect, it would probably have been better to conclude chapter 21 at verse 13 and then to attach this final part of chapter 21 to the opening of chapter 22. And the reason is that here we have the recounting of these marvelous deliverances of David as a preparation for a song of David that glorifies God as the one who delivered him. Now, no doubt the reference in verse 15 about David leading the battle and getting tired is at a time of middle age for David when he spends most of his time tending to state matters and little time training his body for the rigors of combat. And whereas David was always rescuing someone else early in his life, especially before he became a king, now we have his nephew Abishai having to rescue David. Nick of time, I might add. Now it's interesting to me that we are reminded of the giants of Gath. Now, Gath was a major Philistine city-state. In fact, we see Goliath's name mentioned here. 
It's caused some needless consternation among Bible teachers because they see a conflict between the time when David is the young shepherd boy battled and beheaded this warrior Goliath and later on. But it seems that Goliath Goliath was a common name among this race of people. And so it was just another indifferent Goliath that's being spoken about here. The result of this near miss on David's life prompted his generals to insist that he stay home in the safety of his palace fortress called the city of David. And this because he is the lamp of Israel. He's too important to risk. Now more likely this term lamp of Israel equates to how we might today say that a particular leader is the heart and soul of a nation or or a family. It isn't meant to be taken terribly spiritually, but rather it's an epithet meant to eulogize someone for their great merit, their, their importance to the community. Well, verses 18 onward, to me, seems mainly to chronicle the demise of this declining race of giants that had thrown in with the Philistines and contributed greatly to the air of invincibility that had propelled the Philistine war machine for so long. In the Bible, this race is called the Anakim and alternately the Rephaim. And they eventually died out as their limited gene pool shrank into oblivion not long after David's time. Why they died out is rather quickly... Uh, rather rather quickly is, is kind of easy to explain. They were always put up front in every battle. <laughs> and since they were so large and fearsome, they were put at the vanguard of every conflict as a means to frighten the enemy. Thus, they were always the most vulnerable. Pretty big targets. Now we're even told that one of these giants who had six fingers and six toes but really such a medical phenomenon of having an extra digit on an extremity is is, is quite common among people who are unusually tall now one statement in verse 18 bears a little bit more scrutiny because when properly translated it helps us to understand the intent a little better take a look at verse 18 where most Bibles, as with our complete Jewish Bible, will say, one of the sons of the giant. What it actually says in Hebrew is, Yalid Ha-Rafa. Okay? This translates literally to, born to Rafa. The ancient Hebrew sages explained that Rafa is the name of the father of the race named after him, the Raphaim. Alright, we sometimes spell it the Rephaim. It can be spelled either way. So as an analogy, this would be like calling David one born to Israel. Jacob called Israel is not David's biological father. 
but rather this is a means of explaining ancient family ties that today we would call a race of people. In David's case, that race was the Israelites. Now let's move on to chapter 22. This is a long chapter. And although we're going to read it all at one sitting, we're going to go back and reread portions as we go along. So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Page 359 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. David said the words of this song to Adonai on the day Adonai delivered him from the power of all of his enemies and from the power of Saul. And he said, Adonai is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, the God who is my rock and whom I find shelter, my shield, the power that saves me, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you have saved me from violence. I call on Adonai who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. For death's breakers were closing over me, the floods of Belial terrified me, the ropes of Sheol were wrapped around me. The snares of death lay there before me, and in my distress I called to Adonai, yes, I called to my God. Out of his temple he heard my voice, and my cry entered his ears. Then the earth quaked and shook. The foundations of heaven trembled. They were shaken because he was angry. Smoke arose in his nostrils, and from his mouth devouring fire, with coals blazing from it. He lowered heaven and came down with a thick darkness under his feet. He rode on a keru of a cherub, and he flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, thick clouds in the skies, dense with water. From the brightness before him, fiery coals flamed out. Adonai thundered from heaven. Ha'elyon sounded his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them. With lightning he routed them. The channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were exposed at Adonai's rebuke. At the blast of breath from his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me and pulled me out of deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from those who hated me, for they were stronger than I. They came against me on my day of calamity, but Adonai was my support. He brought me out to an open place. He rescued me because he took pleasure in me. Adonai rewarded me for my uprightness. He repaid me because my hands were clean. For I have kept the ways of Adonai, for I have not done evil by leaving God. For all his rulings were before me. I did not depart from his regulations. I was pure-hearted towards him, and I kept myself from my sin. Hence Adonai repaid me for my uprightness, according to my purity in his view. With the merciful, you are merciful. With the champion of purity, you are pure. With the honest, you are honest. But with the crooked, you are cunning. People afflicted, you save. But when your eyes are on the haughty, you humble them. For you, Adonai, are my lamp. Adonai lights up my darkness. With you I can run through a whole troop of men. With my God I can leap a wall. As for God, His ways are perfect. The word of Adonai has been tested by fire. He shields all who take refuge in Him. For who is God but Adonai? And who is a rock but our God? 
God is my strength and protection. He makes my way go straight. He makes me swift and sure-footed as a deer and enables me to stand on my high places. He trains my hands for war until my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield, which is salvation. Your answers make me great. You lengthen the steps I can take, yet my ankles don't turn. I pursued my enemies and wiped them out without turning back until they were destroyed. I destroyed them, crushed them, they can't get up. They have fallen under my feet. For you braced me with strength for the battle and bent down my adversaries beneath me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight so that I could destroy those who hate me. They looked, but there was no one to help, even to Adonai, but he didn't answer. I pulverized them like dust on the ground, pounded and stamped on them like mud in the streets. You also freed me from the quarrels of my people. You kept me to be the head of the nations. A people I did not know now serve me. Foreigners come cringing to me. The moment they hear of me, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart as they stagger from their fortresses. Adonai is alive. Blessed is my rock. Exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gives me vengeance and makes people submit to me. He brings me out from my enemies. You raise me over those who rebel against me. You rescue me from violent men. So I give thanks to you, Adonai, among the nations. I sing praises to your name. He is a tower of salvation for his king. He displays grace to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forever. First notice, as I mentioned earlier, how the first words of this chapter speak to David's deliverance from his enemies. And this immediately follows the short listing of battles with the Philistines from chapter 21. So we would be far better to begin this chapter by starting at verse 15 of the previous chapter in order to see that it was all intended to flow together as a single thought. Now this chapter is known as David's psalm or song of thanksgiving. And it's also duplicated in its entirety in the book of Psalms as Psalm 18. Now there's some minor, there are some differences between 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18, but they're generally few and minor. Now some regard this song as sort of David's last words, but, but really it's more of a summation of what he has learned over his lifetime about God, about kingship, about God's kingdom, and there are even some prophetic utterances of a future king and a future kingdom that are messianic in nature. Now almost certainly this was written in his old age as he's reflecting on this full range of dangers and deliverances that he experienced. Now much of this is written using figurative and poetic speech. Thus we have, for instance, God riding upon a cherub, shooting arrows, breathing smoke and fire. None of this is real. It's just a way to express a principle or a characteristic 
using common illustrations that people of David's day would understand. Further, sometimes particular words were chosen in order to achieve the the rhythmic and, and metered attributes of poetry rather than for a precision of meaning. Now the other thing that becomes obvious in this psalm is that um, we see this ultimate cosmic conundrum expressed that both Judaism and the church have struggled with mightily. And it is that God has two primary attributes that are totally at odds with one another and thus seem impossible for the same being to hold on to simultaneously. On the one hand, Yehovah mercifully and lovingly watches over his worshipers and he delivers them from troubles. On the other, he is fierce, he is ruthless, he's a warrior god who punishes and he destroys, usually his enemies, but at times his own worshipers who have become unfaithful. These are characteristics that are biblically associated with the Messiah as well. That again, both Judaism and Christianity have struggled to harmonize or sometimes even to accept. Judaism calls the saving attribute of God that is manifested in the Messiah as Ben Yosef, son of Joseph. They call the fierce and ruthless warrior manifestation as Messiah Ben David, son of David. Thus Judaism solves the problem by saying that since it is impossible that a single being could harbor these opposite attributes, then there will be two messiahs. One that's a deliverer, the other that's a destructive warrior. Christianity has generally solved the problem by saying that Messiah is only a deliverer and the warrior attribute is dead and gone and belongs to the Old Testament God. Thus the church tends to apologize for the former bloodthirsty God of the Hebrew Bible who has thankfully been replaced by the loving and self-sacrificial God of the New Testament. And as I once reminded a a dear friend of mine who, who is indeed the poster child for this view of our New Testament Messiah's character as a singular one of mercy, peace, and love, I asked him this question one time. Then who is this mysterious person who leads the saints into battle at Armageddon, personally killing millions of the enemy until blood in that enormous valley, the blood of that conflict, rises to the level of a horse's bridle. Who is that person? Therefore, this Psalm of David is actually looking ahead 
to one Messiah that appears in two manifestations at two different times. Or as modern evangelical Christians call it, the first coming and the second coming. In the first coming of Messiah, the Messiah of the Gospels, he is indeed the loving deliverer. In the second coming, the Messiah of the book of Revelation, he is a fierce, ruthless warrior and king over all mankind, not just over Israel, who will annihilate his enemies and then will rule the entire earth, we're told, with a rod of iron. Okay, so let's dissect David's song of uh, thanksgiving. Well, in verse 1, David is thanking Yehovah for delivering him from all of his enemies and from the power of Saul. Thus, David considers his enemies as those who are attacking him on a national basis for a national purpose. That is, they want to rule over Israel, they want to absorb Israel into their foreign empire like the Philistines, or they wanted to just destroy Israel. David distinguishes them from King Saul, who, if he's even considered an enemy, attacks David on a personal level for a personal purpose. David never disputed that Saul was the rightful God-appointed king. Rather, it was that the paranoid and delusional Saul saw David as a rival to be squashed at a time when David had no ambition to rule over Israel and was totally loyal to King Saul. And in verse 2, we see some beautiful and grand figurative and metaphorical expressions that describe Yehovah. And by the way, over and over in this piece, even though our Bibles obscure it, the Lord's formal name, Yudhevavhe, Yehovah, Yahweh, however you want to pronounce it, is expressed. This is opposed to the words of our English translations such as God or Lord or in our complete Jewish Bible, Adonai. Now the first expression used describes God as a rock. And the Hebrew word used in this instance for rock is Selah. Now Selah refers to a a cliff, uh, a, uh, a crag, a rocky outcropping located on a high place. Okay? It's meant to be coupled to the next description of the Lord as David's fortress and deliverer and then in first, verse 3 as the place of refuge. So the mental picture we are to get is of God bringing David up to an impenetrable high place and protecting him there. And the ancients, you see, all thought of their gods as living on mountaintops. Now, this included the Hebrews. Thus, the first biblical name or title given to God in the Bible is El Shaddai, which means God of the mountain. And we have Moses meeting God where? On a mountaintop, Mount Sinai. 
Now the second use of the word rock is an entirely different Hebrew word. It's tzur. And tzur refers more to a boulder, the way we more typically think of a rock. Tzur is regularly also used in the Bible metaphorically as a symbol of stability and strength, a boulder. Now verses 2 through 4 is kind of a summation of the theme of this entire psalm. Divine deliverance from David's agitated life so full of its ups and downs. How many times David must have thought that there could be no hope for tomorrow? And how many other times tomorrow seems so secure and certain? And these various descriptions of God are not only about who God is, deliverer, defender, savior, but also it's about what God does. So David is glorifying the Lord not just for his character, but for his actions. Now verse 5 presents water as a violent flood of death that's enveloping David. It also poetically terms them the floods of Baalial. Your Bibles may say destruction. Now we've encountered the term Baalial a number of times, usually in the phrase Bene Baalial, sons of worthlessness. Okay? The idea is of evil, satanic. So it's the adversary who is using various proxies to try and kill David. In fact, by New Testament times, Baalial had actually become a formal name for Satan. We hear of this in 2 Corinthians 6.15. What harmony can there be between the Messiah and Baalial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Okay. So David envisions the ropes of Sheol, the grave, the underworld of death, already binding him and dragging him down into the bowels of the earth. So certain did the prospect of death seem at times. But when all seemed hopeless, that no restoration or rescue was possible, David called out to Jehovah, whom he terms my Elohim, my God, as opposed to other gods. And then out of his temple, his Hekal, the Lord heard, the Lord Shema, David's voice. Okay. God's Hekal, his temple. This is referring to God's heavenly abode. At this time, no earthly temple for Jehovah had been built yet. But now that God sees David's dilemma, and that the evil one is trying to destroy God's anointed king, God acts. And when God acts, all nature reacts. When God moves, the universe must respond. But the invisible spiritual sphere is also affected. So a picture is painted of the earth shaking 
like an earthquake, but also of heaven quaking as God rises to an irresistible, wrathful fury. These are all metaphors for utter destruction being brought upon the enemies of God's chosen. Smoke from God's nostrils, fire shooting out of His mouth, hot coals. Okay? These are all common biblical idioms expressing rage and anger. In fact, it was and it still is a common Middle Eastern idiom to speak of a person who is angry as one whose nostrils heat up. Now one more time, let me say these expressions that we're reading are all figurative. God does not have nostrils. He doesn't have ears. He doesn't have a hand to hold a sword. He doesn't have a mouthful of hot coals that spews fire. In fact, to speak of God as angry is stretching matters a bit. God is spirit. He is without form. He is without emotions that, as, as we think of them. He does not bounce from happiness to sadness to anger and then back again as the situation changes. God is not a man. He's not even a superman. God is a whole other being that comes to us from another dimension beyond time and space. But what else did the ancients have? Or what else have we moderns to relate to God with other than our than the terms of our own human existence within the context of our familiar surroundings. Yet we must be very cautious in attaching human attributes to God and should instead at times merely accept His awesome mystery and our inability to comprehend Him. When we carry human familiarity with God one step too far, it's foolish and it's irreverent, if not idolatry. Now verse 10 begins a decidedly messianic picture of God that Hebrews and Christians both acknowledge. God comes down to earth with a thick, impenetrable darkness between He and mankind. We don't have time to read all the portions of Exodus that describes the same phenomenon, but I'm going to read you this short excerpt from Exodus 19, verses 17 through 20. Moshe, Moses, brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They stood near the base of the mountain. Mount Sinai was enveloped in smoke because Adonai descended into it, onto it. In, in, in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain shook violently. And as the sound of the shofar grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. God answered him with a voice. Adonai came down onto Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Then Adonai called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. See, it was up into a thick darkness, here figuratively described as smoke, that Moses ascended 
to receive the Ten Commandments. This darkness is a type of veil between God and man for man's own protection because we are told emphatically no man can see God and live. Thus there was also established a veil the paroket between man and the innermost chamber the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. Verse 11 gives us another figurative picture of God coming down the earth. And this is of him riding on the back of a cherub, a a karuv. And he was seen, we're told, this is interesting, as on the wings of the wind. The ruach, which also means spirit. Because the Lord's temple in heaven is the original incomparable model after which the wilderness tabernacle on earth was patterned, the cherub then adorns the lid of the ark of the covenant that the Lord rides above. He uses the lid, we're told, as his footstool. This is figurative, of course. The ark was literally, however, where God met with Moses when the Lord called him. And notice the reference to the spirit, the wind, the ruach, which is the means by which God manifests himself on earth. Or in a figurative sense, transports himself to earth. Now let me pause here for a moment to point out that what is being described in this passage is a time when the Lord becomes so enraged at the treatment of those who are His chosen and elected people. When the Creator decides to move decisively and destructively against the forces of wickedness who were on the verge of winning the eternal battle against the righteous, that He became personally involved. This is not an event that happens every day. In fact, the next time this happens will be when our Lord and Messiah Yeshua returns. Because here, David is describing the day of the Lord. And notice that verse 12 says that God comes with darkness as a canopy around Him with thick clouds and the skies dense with water. Now I'm going to finish with this thought and I hope it will give you a pause to contemplate it if not noticing the chills that run up and down your spine when I tell you. I've taught you all that the seven biblical feasts are prophetic of milestones of Messiah's redemptive work on behalf of Jehovah. I have taught you that the first four of the feasts have been fulfilled exactly as foretold. The New Testament teaches us plainly and without equivocation that Yeshua died on the Feast of Passover, went into the rocky tomb on the Feast of Matzah, arose from the dead on the Feast of Bichurim, first fruits. Further, after Yeshua ascended, the Holy Spirit came to indwell men when? 
on the fourth of the yearly feasts, the Feast of Shavuot, also called Pentecost. Thus, I can only conclude that all remaining acts of redemption will occur on the three remaining biblical feasts, the final one being Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. Now, the two main features of the Feast of Sukkot are the the Sukkah, the booth, and the water libation ceremony at the temple, which is essentially a plea to God for rain. Look at verse 12 with me. Look at verse 12. Adding back in a few Hebrew words, we find that what it says is, He, God, made Hoshech, spiritual darkness, His sukkah, His booth around Him. And thick clouds in the skies were dense with mayim, water, rain. The day of the Lord will in the end times, we are told, be as the day of darkness was in Egypt. That horrifying darkness in Egypt that shook Israel's captors to their core was not Lael, the benign and regular darkness of nighttime, but rather it was Choshech, spiritual darkness, obscurity, denoting divinely caused calamity. Thus we have an event in David's psalm of thanksgiving when God comes to earth with a sukkah around him and bringing rainwater with him. It is at this moment that he comes to deliver his chosen and anointed from the throes of annihilation at the hand of evil and also to destroy his enemies. I cannot say it with 100% certainty. But for me, this lends further credence to the day of the Lord, God's pouring out His wrath on earth, thus the entry of God's people into Messiah's millennial kingdom as being directly related to the feast of Sukkot, the feast of tabernacles. We do not know the year of our Lord's return, but we can know the season. And the season is the fall feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, we'll continue this next time.